Welcome to the Mixtape with Scott, a podcast where we delve into the annals of economic history, exploring the last 50 years through the lens of the personal and professional journeys of economists. We focus on areas that I like, like Gary Becker students at Chicago and Columbia, the scientists who work on econometrics and causal inference, and the push and pull of PhD economists into the tech industry. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. In this episode, I had the rare privilege of interviewing one of my favorite econometricians, Dr. Rocio Tutunek, a veritable powerhouse in the field of econometrics, particularly regression discontinuity design. Rocio, along with her team, has made a monumental impact in our understanding of RDD, as it's called, as well as its practice. She is, with her team, the author of one of the more widely used software packages, RD Robust, which has quickly become an industry standard. What set this interview apart was Rocio's remarkable authenticity and openness about her life. It's not often that I get to talk to someone so willing to share the ups and downs of their career, the uncertainties and the struggles that they endured. We often think we are the only ones like that, and we cover it up really well. So to hear from someone willing and able, someone who is very accomplished in their career, tell us about the challenges that they faced on their journey well, I found it very encouraging. I hope you do too. Rocio shares her feelings of being lost for years as a graduate student, um, even before and during her program, struggling to find her place within this vast tapestry of economics, both intellectually and socially, before finally discovering how it all fits together. The story was not just inspiring, it was also deeply relatable. It provided a unique insight into her life and work, revealing not just a significant figure in the field of causal inference and econometrics, but also a human being with her own set of challenges and victories. It's a story of perseverance and self-discovery that really resonated with me. I truly hope you enjoy this enlightening and heartfelt interview as much as I did. And remember, don't miss out on our upcoming workshop on mixtape sessions where Dr. Chichenik on Wednesday, May 17th through the 19th, will be teaching students about the world of regression discontinuity design. It's a fantastic opportunity to learn and grow with one of the best. So make sure to mark your calendars and join us. Thank you for tuning in once again. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast to stay updated on future episodes. Also, check out my Substack, Scott's Substack, where I semi-regularly post what I call econometric explainers, as well as experiments with ChatGPT to explain econometrics itself. Your support and engagement mean the world to me, and I can't wait to bring you even more thought-provoking and inspiring conversations. Okay, well, it is a pleasure to have uh, on the show. Um, longtime fan, longtime fan, first time, not first time, second time listener, longtime listener, second time caller. So, uh, uh, Dr. Rocio Tutunek, I didn't say that name right, though. I know that you've told it to me, but I didn't say it right. How do I how do I pronounce it? Rocio Tutunek. Rocio, I'm going to say Rocio. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. So before we get started. If you could say your name, your job title, and who pays your bills. Uh, yeah, my name is Rocio Titionek. I'm professor of politics at Princeton University. Uh, that's my job. Okay. That's my full-time job. That's your full-time job. Okay, great. All right. So we're going to start with an icebreaker. Um, can you share a special memory, a tradition, or a favorite activity from your childhood or early years that has kind of stayed with your memories over these years and why? 
Mm. Okay, so my, I grew up in Argentina, Buenos Aires, um, in apartment buildings, different ones. And one thing that we seemed to do regularly, at least in the beginning, was to set up a Christmas tree, but we weren't religious. Uh, we are a mix of re religions. Uh, so it was, but we celebrate Christmas in a, in a non-religious way, but we would set up a tree and the tree was plastic, uh, which later I learned when we moved here that, uh, Lots of people actually use real trees, but we just had a small plastic tree um, and set it up with uh, blinking color lights and uh, very hot in the summer in December in Argentina because it's Southern Hemisphere. And it was the best thing in the world to just come out at night after most people in the house had gone to sleep and just see the entire living room blinking. Yeah, uh, different colors uh, with the smell of that plastic tree, which I'm sure was pretty horrendous looking, uh, but uh, just the best thing in the world and the anticipation of little presents at uh, the top of that plastic tree. Um, and every year uh, it was the same like wonder it's yeah so I you know I can I can recall the feeling of wonder sometimes I wonder whether there was something magical inside those little packages I was very young probably yeah. six or seven or eight um, but that that stayed with me I'm not sure it counts as a tradition but it was something that happened year after year at least in the beginning my parents were still together yeah um, yeah do you do you guys still do that with your kids? We do a more American thing. Uh, we get like a real uh, tree, uh -huh. and uh, yeah, we decorate the tree. We're not religious either. Um, we decorate the tree, and it's like fun. It's actually fun to set it up. Now I set it up with my kids, and it smells nice, and it also has nice. Yeah, so we do some some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Even for the even for non-religious people, the Christmas tradition is is uh, you know, has been stripped a lot of that religiosity, and it's just such a. I had such a wonderful uh, childhood with that. One of my one of my memories is we could open one present the day before the night before mm. and there was this there was this gift and uh it was like you know as a kid it was just like it was kind of big enough and it didn't shake I don't know why I picked it in hindsight I should have I should have noticed and I opened it and it was a bible and uh, uh -huh. I cried all night that was a yeah. that was quite a bummer <laughs> that was not what the six-year-old kid wanted yeah, yeah. I wanted, wanted the toy he wanted the toy <laughs> okay well, so tell me about uh, your childhood. What you said you grew up in Argentina. Where in Argentina did you say you grew up? What was it? Grew up in Buenos Aires, urban? the cap. The oh, urban, okay. Very urban. So the capital, the Buenos Aires city, right? So the capital, the federal district, basically of mm. Argentina. So it's like the Washington D.C. Uh, mm. Very large city. Back in the day, it was three million people who lived in the city. It's more now. And about several other million who come from the from the province that surrounds the city into the city every day. So very very large urban uh, place. Lived on the ninth floor, on the fifth floor. You know, up there, they're very uh, relatively small apartments compared to, uh, you know, suburban uh, life that I have now, uh, big yeah. houses and so on. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Very urban environment and uh, very different. Well, what kind of 
you know, like if you're in New York City, you know, you grow yeah. up in like Greenwich Village, you're like on the public transportation as a kid. What's it mm -hmm. like being a kid in Rio back then? In Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires, yeah. Yes, uh, same. So basically from a very young age, you started to navigate the city by yourself. Um, I started taking the bus. Well, perhaps I was a little extreme, but I started taking the bus to school in fourth grade. And this was the public bus, not the school bus. So uh, you would go uh, walk to the avenue and wait for the bus. You know, it's it's a, such a huge city. You don't need to look at, you know, any timetables. You you know, every three or four minutes, uh, there's a, you know, there's a repeat of the bus that you're waiting for that, that just comes by. So you just go and stand there and three or four minutes, five at the most, bus arrives. You, you know, used to pay with cash, little ticket, and then, travel for about 30 minutes, public bus, and then get off the bus and walk a couple blocks. Um, that was pretty difficult. I it was a little maybe atypical to, to be in fourth grade, but, but but fifth or sixth grade, every kid was basically doing the same. Yeah. Uh, and when I started high school, I was uh, we don't have middle school. So basically you start in eighth grade and I would take the subway. So, you know, the commute to school was, you know, walk four blocks. I take the subway and then um, walk down Plaza de Mayo and 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 go to school. So it was uh, constantly surrounded by uh, strangers uh, and everywhere and, and and lots of people everywhere. Very different from say how my kids are are today. You know, grow are growing up. Uh, you think if you today. lived there now with your kids, you think you could ima even imagine. <laughs> letting them do that yeah it's very it's a very good question I think uh I don't know if nine-year-olds do that this day is in in Buenos Aires I don't know if it's um if it's any more dangerous than it was back then we didn't have a sense that it was dangerous in any way to do that uh I mean not 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 in the areas where where you know we were doing it but I I, I probably would have a hard time I, I but although my kids are now getting older so I think you know 14 15 year old I would I would be okay uh with kids doing that it was very common as I became you know as you were 14 or 15 to to yeah come back late at night you have a lot of freedom right compared to what it is to you know have to be driven by somebody else yeah to go places you have complete freedom uh, and that permeated every aspect of our lives, I think, uh, as as teenagers, as early, like young teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, what did your parents do for a living? Let's see. So my uh, my father uh, worked in uh, in private companies. He uh, always doing the same job in at different places. So he um, recently retired as an expert manager. So my father is is very gifted with music and languages. So he spoke, still does, uh, five different languages very well, or four or five very well. Mm. And so he took those skills uh, into his career. And so basically, back in the eighties uh, and nineties, you know, before Google Translate and you know, smart, uh, you know you know, smart technologies and so on, language was a real barrier, you know, language could be a real barrier. And so he had this ability of 
uh, you know, being able to pretty much travel the world and communicate. And so he um, he would uh, be in charge of us uh, exporting a particular product, uh, right. typically from a company. So he first started doing that for meat, so Argentinian meat. So he would export. He would be in charge of basically uh, traveling the world and uh, and you know selling meat. Then he did orthodontics, uh, uh, dental uh, dental tools. Yeah, comp- uh, and selling that, and then for the last uh, twenty-five years or so, or more than twenty years, he worked for a rice company, exporting their uh, their uh, high-end rice mm. to all kinds of chefs uh, um, all over the world. And so, one of the very interesting things about his career was that he traveled the world literally, mm. um, and he traveled the world in the early eighties when very few people traveled. Right when traveling mm. was not something that was very common. But I mean, particularly not in Argentina. And this was before. Um, yeah. So so even though my mother was an immigrant, so I had a sense that there was a world out there. Um, yeah. The the most immediate sense was that my father would be out of town for sometimes four weeks at a time, and he would go to places that for us sounded very, uh, very different. And in places like Saudi Arabia, he would go to Iraq. He'd go to um, mm. uh, many countries in Africa. And one of the incredible things that he bring toys from all these countries. So I yeah. had a very diverse set of dolls uh-huh. uh, uh, of all kinds of races and ethnicities. There was like a sense that he was bringing a little bit of the world every time he came back in this form yeah. of different toys. And he was always, always very good at the part that he loved about traveling was to getting to know other cultures. So he would get like, you know, indigenous things from wherever he was and, yeah. you know, things that reflected particular to, you know, traditions and bring those home. And so that was pretty magical. Yeah. Uh, and so he, I don't think it's a coincidence that I, I had a horizon that was very far. Right. Um, because right. he was bringing the world to us and showing to us as kids that the world was massive. Was big. Very big. Mm. Um. My mom was uh my mom was a professor. She oh. she studied philosophy as undergrad, hmm. and then actually, uh, funny, she's um basically specialized in kind of philosophy of science for a little bit, and oh. met- and 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 methodology of science, and then he he got an appointment in the school of psychology in the public university in Buenos Aires as um as a professor of methodology of research. <laughs> oh, interesting. So it's it's funny that it is not completely unrelated from what I do. Yeah, sure. very, very different. And so That's her training true. was in her training was in philosophy, not in statistics, but later in life she actually ran into statistics and decided. I remember when she was learning the chi square test. Uh-huh. So my mom had no training in mathematics whatsoever, but she later in life like started learning those kinds of things. Yeah. But she worked for a long, long time in the Department of Psychology in the university, um, teaching methodology of research, in particularly in in with applications to psych to the study of psychology. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, yeah, actually, until you said that, you could totally see how the work that you do is kind of like the philosophy of science. It's like, this is the right way to do it. And this is uh, 
this will yield an answer and these other things won't. It's all about epistemology and things like that. Yeah. So she did, she, yeah, she, 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 that's, that was her specialty epistemology. So it's not, you know, it's not, but it's not unrelated. It's not totally unrelated. unrelated. Not entirely unrelated. Yeah. So the word methodology, she used a lot in what Uh she did. And she considered herself an academic. It's very different from what we understand as an academic now, but, um, but but yeah, she had this uh, cathedra, which is more like the you know German or European style, where basically you are appointed and then you have a group of people who kind of work under you. Mm-hmm. And and job number one is to teach this class, so she taught this class every semester. Mm-hmm. But then as part of that, she would do you know workshops, and she trained a lot of um, a lot of uh, people uh, under her. And yeah, she was a force, and she everybody knew who she was uh, at the cool. university. That's cool. Well, so she, she studied a lot. She 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 was she, she studied a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, what what were you like as a high school student? What were your passions and what were your interests? And you know, what what did your teachers? What did they think about you? Mm, I went to a, a a public universe, a public uh, high school. Uh, very prestigious, very very large, about mm-hmm. three thousand students. So I don't think anybody. Oh, wow knew anything about me um mm. or thought anything about me i i that's an, i never asked this question to myself does anybody remember me as a student in high school <laughs> i don't know um i was very responsible yeah i was very responsible i was very structured i was a very good student um I didn't, I don't know that I allow myself to pursue my interests. Mm. I was very worried about doing well in school. Mm. Um, so I guess if I did it again, I would do it differently, probably. <laughs> but I was a very, so, you know, I was a student who would always do the homework and I was a student that, and I treated every subject equally. And, uh, and I was, I, I was always very stressed about school. School was hard. I took it very seriously. Yeah. Um, this school was a very, it was very hard to get in. You had to go through a, a year long process for admission where mm-hmm. you had to take classes after after school, after elementary. Mm-hmm. And then you had to take 12 exams. I think it was 12 along the course of a year. Then you were ranked based on your grades. Then oh, all percentage is, of those people. That is stressful. Yeah. So very, very stressful for a you know twelve year old, right. uh, which I did it as a twelve year old. And so once I got in, I consider this to be you know the greatest accomplishment uh, sure. for me at that. Uh, and so then once I was in, I took it very seriously that I mm. and and so there was, uh, yeah. So it was very serious all the time. <laughs> Possibly not the healthiest approach, but that's um. That's what it was. I the school was very humanistically or humanistic oriented. A lot of languages, Latin, Greek, mm. um, uh, philosophy, history, very uh, humanities heavy. Um, yeah. And I like that, but I don't know that I explored the full extent of uh, other things. Later on, the later years, you had more like sciences and things, but the vibe of the school was not about science it was about humanities mm. did you um, have like a vision of what kind of future you wanted for yourself like towards the end of high school no yeah i didn't i had um i think i was very misguided in how i, I chose so i enjoyed the humanities a lot 
I struggled, I struggled to see the practicality of them. And so if I try to think of myself, what can you do? Being an academic was not, I guess I had seen my mom in the public university. That was not an easy life. Uh, uh, you know, low pay, not a lot of. So I didn't have a sense that, you know, you could go abroad and be an academic or you, there are places where you can be an academic and actually make a living and these kinds of things. So that was not, a, so I was trying to think of, um, I guess I didn't see the humanities as, per se as a profession. Right. Uh, but then I had a very hard time. I actually never projected myself as being a professional of anything. And I I had this vague sense of uh, there's a lot of poverty, I don't know, if in the world probably in Latin America or around me, and I should do I should do something related to that, maybe to understand it. It was very idealistic. I wanted to understand that and maybe do something with it. That's also not a profession. Right. So when I chose economics, it was with I saw it as a means to an end. It's like I saw a lot of turmoil around me. So I grew right. up, I mean, Argentina, all times in Argentina are turbulent. Mm -hmm. And the times when I was growing up were no exception. And so I had a sense that I had a duty to study something that would allow me to understand kind of mm. the tumult around me. But that was a very misguided But you had that responsible kind of personality. Yes, yes, you very responsible. Like it was never like, about it wasn't what about I you. It was about, you know, got to do the right thing or something. Exactly. It was never about what you like to do when you wake up in the morning, right? What is it that you enjoy that that fills you with? So, uh, so yeah, I would, I would, I would say that's the wrong way to choose what one mm. wants to do. Uh, now that I'm older and more mature, I can see, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Not, I bet if you live in a country that has a lot of economic struggles, then it's not uncommon to just sort of people, if you have any ounce of altruism and, and a connection to the place that you think, well, I'm smart. I probably need to try to figure this out. Is that true? It's probably not uncommon. And I see it now in applications from PhD students, uh, from, you know, uh, from abroad that they would often say, you know, yeah, I grew up as a refugee. And so I have a, so yeah. So, so some of the experiences that you had growing up as that, that they, you know, shape what, what they sense of, you know, I need to understand this as opposed to, I think what is more common here, you know, if you have, if you are privileged enough to, you know, grow up without, you know, without lacking, you know, basic access, uh, you know, to, to education and, 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 and safety and all these things, I think it's more common to think about, well, what do I like to do? Right, 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 right. You know? So so where did you end up going to college and, and how did you choose it? Well, I went to the University of Buenos Aires. Um, oh, okay. Uh, and I chose economics out of a sense that I that was probably the thing that would take me closer to understanding. Whatever it was that I wanted to understand, that it was also not very well articulated in my mind. So I just enrolled. The University of Buenos Aires is free and public and no entrance exam. So you just sign up and just go. Mm. Uh, so it's called UBA, Universidad de Buenos Aires. And UBA has a lot of different schools, which we call departments, but they're really different, completely separate schools. They're not in the same geographical place, most of them. And the whole, uh, the whole place, the whole building and the whole uh, five years, 
is just about the subject that you chose. So if I chose economics, five years of econ classes, that's it. There's no sense of there's major, there's minor, you take two years to declare, you explore, you have distributional requirements, none of, none of that. Hmm. Well, what do you so, remember yeah. from those classes? I mean, so you, you oftentimes your first exposure to economics is like a, a class, a, a teacher or people or books. And I was wondering, you know, of those three, what do you remember? What, what do you remember being your first kind of exposure that made you kind of intrigued by economics? The real, I think the first time, so it took some time, like there was this intro classes that were pretty chaotic, you know, that it's, it was a pretty big place, like oh. in total, like 70,000 students. Oh my gosh. Uh, many of whom were studying, the majority of them are studying accounting. So in the same department, it's accounting, actuarial science, economics, and then um, administration. So econ was a very small person, like a relatively small percentage, relatively small per percentage of, of the of the student body. Um, but nonetheless, you had to go into the place with you know this uh, thousands of people. So so the the first few years were pretty large and uh, mostly you know in personal chaotic classes. But then mm. once we advanced, there was a group of uh, you know. First of all, first you once you advanced, then the classes became specifics for the econ economics, you know, track for the economics degree, and so that became smaller. And then within that, uh, there were uh, there was a group of of students who I think had their sights on maybe grad school or maybe who knows, but they were doing extra reading groups. They were, I don't know, the nerds or the academically inclined students. And there was a particular type of class that there was a particular sequence that you followed if you were part of that group. So for example, because it was a very large place, there were like three different econometrics classes that you could take. One was Monday, Tuesday, Monday, you know, Wednesday, the other one was Tuesday. And so everybody knew you had to take a Proofman's class uh, because that's the hardest. And so we that's like the real serious one. And so we would choose the classes. So eventually you started to recognize the people because we were all choosing uh, you know, the, the classes oh, that were the is, most demanding. This is when your your like friendships form, your econ yeah. colleagues, because you're like sorting into the same classes. You are. And that's yeah. how I met my husband in those oh, in that group of people. Yeah. Oh. Uh, in that group of people who, you know, were doing this track. Like we, yeah. And so all of many of, of us ended up being academics or you know closely connected, kind of all over. So was it uh, econometrics and, that you were kept finding yourself getting pulled into, or was it other no, not not at the time. I I I have to say that um, I guess that one of the classes that I remember most vividly because it's very uh, I guess internally consistent and there's like such a deep framework for it was micro micro theory micro micro. Oh, you like micro theory? Yeah, I mean, I I like the. I don't know if like it's I I like the. It was a new way of thinking, right? The, yeah. The, 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 yeah, the, the, the internal consistency of that entire machinery and framework and um, those results and the way in which you, are, you were using mathematics to you know, put out these results. But at the same time, um, I took this history of political, uh, economic thought classes. Oh, yeah. 
uh, with a Marxist professor who was yeah. like a legend uh, uh, at the time. And I devoured those classes and mm -hmm. I, I love those classes. And I had a very, I had a very critical view of the neoclassical paradigm that was very much fueled by um, these classes and a group of people who are like Marxist inclinations that mm -hmm. were critical of the neoclassical framework and, and the narrow notion of rationality and so on. So I found myself gravitating towards this philosophy of economic, like more philosophical yeah. aspects of it. And Did you ever talk to your a, mom about some of that stuff? Uh, a, a little bit. Uh -huh. A little bit, uh, not as much as I should have. Uh huh. Not as much as I should have. Uh, by, I don't. It's an interesting question. It was why didn't we talk about? Um, I think it was very much in the context of economics, and my mom didn't have any yeah. training in economics, so I don't know that I could convey to her what a utility function is, or what right. you know, or utility optimizing behavior is, or these kinds of things, or yeah. or. Comp completeness of preferences but I could have tried my mom was a smart mm -hmm. woman um but no but I didn't then my mom got sick pretty early on and so we you know we didn't talk about those things anymore I see yeah but yeah I, I guess I remember I remember I remember micro very well and I, and I also remember my um resistance to you know there was a sense with these other classes that i was trying they were trying to indoctrinate me yeah right with this paradigm and so i had to resist it i had to learn it and master it and at the same time keep an open mind right right and that spirit uh very much stayed with me throughout in uh, throughout and and made me struggle a lot then i couldn't fit in after that mm. after uh after because most econ students didn't find that appealing and they would just you know this is it this is what economics is this is what we learn and this is the paradigm and it's fine there's no problem with it mm -hmm. we had um i joined a reading group on adam smith the wealth of nations that was pretty amazing i remember that it was so hard to read i had a um, yeah i still have it here it's in spanish of course i didn't speak i mean i knew english but i didn't use english um, so, you know, we read it in Spanish and we took weeks to go through four pages yeah. discussing and discussing the theory of value. I mean, those were fascinating. You know, the things you do when you're 19, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. cannot imagine, you know, life is too complicated now and there's too many urgent things that need sure. my attention. Sure. But at 19, the theory of value was front and center. Of what we're it's so to beautiful. That, that <laughs> time in college of... Yeah living inside ideas and talking and seeing it the, is. you know, it's such a formative time, you, you know, I mean, it's like, you probably, I always kind of looked back and felt like, you know, even when I was not being correct in my understanding or arguments I would make, I could tell I was straining into this changing person, you know, mm -hmm. these ideas. Oh, completely. Yeah. So you, uh, you are this interesting student. You're this fascinating college student with these, with the holding in your head, what feels some, with some tension and you've got this close friend, uh, Mattias, doc, uh, Dr. Cataneo. Uh, and so you're thinking about when you're graduating, you're thinking about going to graduate school. Is that right? Uh, that's his plan. That's not mine yet. That's not so your I plan. Met, no. So I met Matthias towards the end of, well, kind of the, in my 
um, in my fourth year, I mean, so we started dating my fourth year. So I kind of knew him as part of this group, but we're not close necessarily. And so I, I was, I was very academically inclined. So I was probably going to continue somehow, but I didn't, um, and I didn't know how, um, I had thought about going to Europe. Um, and so those ideas were forming in my head. And when I met Matthias, his ideas were much more formed than mine. Mm. Um, so he was also thinking about, it's not that he was thinking about maybe studying abroad as I was perhaps thinking about, he had already made a plan uh, and he had already learned uh, uh, everything there was to learn about all the possibilities and how you would get into uh, PhDs in the United States. So this for him was uh, the thing. And I remember- So you couldn't just go there. He's basically like, there's not a straight line. No. Got and it. there and there wasn't. You couldn't go from college in Uba to a PhD to a very good PhD in the United States. That was I'm I'm sure we can find somebody who did it, but very very unusual. We didn't know anybody like that's not something you could do because you didn't have well. First of all, you, you didn't have the training possibly, but most importantly, you didn't have a credible recommendation from anybody yeah. that that somebody in the United States could you know, could understand and could, you know, use as the basis for admission. Uh, yeah. And also you didn't know what grad school was even about. Right. Uh, but Matthias had figured out that there were two private universities in Buenos Aires, or one in the city, one outside of the city, Ditela and San Andres, both of which had as faculty members uh, Argentinian scholars who had studied in, in the US, most of them, some in Oxford and Cambridge in, in England, but mostly in the US, they had PhDs, they had come back to Argentina. Okay. Those uh, people were in these private universities. They would teach in the undergrad, but most of all, they, they had this master's program in economics in both places where these professors taught pretty high level classes for what it was. Uh, so these were people who had been trained in the very best universities in the US. We're talking MIT economics, we're talking uh, Harvard economics, we're talking you know Northwestern economics, like fabulous universities uh, in the US in yeah. PhD and eco programs. So they had amazing training, right? Something that we couldn't even, you know, understand and so these people taught their graduate classes in their master's program and a lot of those classes uh rival a first year phd class that you can find yeah. now right back at the, back, back in the day uh because they basically come back to argentina and model their classes once they became professors after the classes that they had taken as students in this place and so the level of those masters was very very high they were very difficult and very academically demanding and if you did well there, uh, you could get recommendations from these professors and that opened doors. So, and they had a, basically they had a, a system, right? They had a, they sent every year um, several students and they recommended those. They recommended, I'm sure, you know, they ranked, economists love to rank students in particular, but everything, but mostly students. So they were ranked and whatever. Uh, but they recommended everybody. And then a lot of those people 
did well, which basically reinforced uh, future, you know, future applications from from new generations of students, right? Because yeah. so it, so it became like a it became a a connection, right? And so Matthias figured this out. He mm. I don't know how from just still being a college student that 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 this is what we had to do that we had to do a master's in one of these great places and, and then a, from a, there apply yeah get a good letter yeah do, do well. well learn a ton learn, learn a ton, a ton. And, then, and, and and then apply and then this and would apply. be the ticket to to be to be able to go to great places right and i have to say he wasn't wrong so he did it he went to itela that was the two-year program and i was a year behind and so I decided that I would do a master's in the other master's in the other private university that was San Andres, uh, which was just a year long. You know, they differentiated, they competed and differentiated. Uh, so this was only one year, that was two years. And so that would basically align our timing. So y'all really, really cared about each other at this point. Y'all were very close. Were y'all dating? We, we were dating and within a couple months of dating, Matthias, uh, actually, as soon as we started dating, Matthias told me of this plan. His plan was to actually apply that year, try to apply that year without trying the masters in case, but then he stopped that because we started dating. Uh, it's becoming a thing that is very powerful. And so <laughs> he decides to postpone that and so that we can do the masters and, and go, uh, which in retrospect, I think it was, it was probably good for his career in the sense that I don't know that he would have gotten into such a great program straight from undergrad because that was a struggle. But he wanted, he just wanted to go. And he but wanted yeah, to be with yeah. you. But he wanted to be with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we decided, and so it was a commitment. He said, I'll stay. And I, his friend said, you're crazy. Like, how can you make a decision like within a month? Yeah. You don't know this person. That's so a romantic said, story to, it is a to an economist. You know, they can they can follow all this logic. That's like that's yeah. like Ro Romeo and Juliet. I mean, that's like, it was. He said, I stay. And I said, OK, if you stay now, then I'll go with you. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're 20, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so and that's that was the promise on both sides. And that's exactly what we did. He stayed mm. and then I went with him. And so we did the masters and. But the thing is, when I did my master's, I became, I became disillusioned. Like it wasn't fitting with, um, so it, it wasn't as straightforward for me. What's, um, what's the deal? What are you getting disillusioned about in that master's? No, program? it's not disillusioned. It's that I, it's not clear that I'm enjoying, it's not clear that I see, so I have too much of a critical view of, some of these, uh, some of these tools, and it's not clear that I see a part of economics that that really interests me or makes me very passionate at that time. Uh, and, and is that I, kind of a Is there some like residue from the from the just the mark the Marxist sympathies? Probably yes, yes, and the classes become much more disconnected from each other and of course mm. they become much more specialized so we yeah. are doing you know bellman equations right dynamic programming class i mean we're not trying to understand some phenomenon in the, in in the world we are just doing dynamic programming you know it's fascinating right. uh but that's what it is and so i start finding the narrowness of it uh 
a little bit like constraining yeah um intellectually and so in the end i struggled a lot by the end i didn't finish like i don't have my degree mm. so i didn't finish i mean i did all the classes but i didn't write the thesis i didn't i didn't get the degree i was just um yeah and so i yeah and so when matthias applied i didn't apply to phd programs um i had a moment when i thought I want to do philosophy of economics. So when he applied to econ, I applied to philosophy programs. Oh, wow. <laughs> but of course I didn't get in because I had absolutely no background mm. in, in it. It was just uh, an I, idea that I had that that maybe based on the classes that I had taken that hadn't been many, that it was philosophy of economics. That was the thing that I there were, I think, two people in the whole of Europe who did philosophy of economics yeah. in particular, not, not philosophy of science, science, which is already a small, it's philosophy of economics with two right. right, or three, you know? And so it's not something that is mainstream in a philosophy department. Of course I didn't get in. Uh, it was now that I'm on this side, when you receive all these applications that are sound so outlandish, right? Like, you know, I'm a major in biology, but I'm passionate about economics. You go, no, this is not a viable student, right? For a PhD in economics at this time. Right, right. Because you know they won't survive the first year classes, this kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So then we when and Matthias got admitted to use Berkeley Econ Department. And so we went to Berkeley. So you got so in when, I did not. Oh, okay. Keep going. I didn't get in. I didn't get in, but he got in, but but I also was lost. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. So we just went. Uh, we just moved to Berkeley. And when we got to Berkeley, so he started his PhD, you know, summer, summer camp and then PhD. Uh, and, you know, we, we moved to Berkeley, which is to say we moved to a different country in a different language in, you know, the whole different part of the continent. Yeah. Two suitcases we landed in San Francisco. So it was a pretty radical, the most radical thing that we've done. Yeah. Uh, absolutely radical thing to do. Wow. Just pack and go. And yeah. we landed. Uh, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants. My grandmother had done the same at almost 50. She packed and go. She went from wow. Spain to Argentina. Wow. So we did that. Um, but having each well, other was really special. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It was, it was. It was an adventure. It really, we were in our, you know, we were 23 and 24, but, you know, we were, mm. it was a massive adventure, very young and, you know, kind of the world was like right in front of us. So it was amazing. Uh, but, and once I got to Berkeley and I got to see the university, I, I went, wait a minute, I need to get an education here too. Um, I knew we were going to be there for five years. And I just, I was blown away by the libraries, the free mm. speech cafe, the, the, I, I, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't resist it. It was like being, you know, surrounded by, you know, candy. Well, I just candy. had a curiosity with that Marcus, with that Marxist background, I bet of all the universities that are like neoclassical and mainstream and so forth, being at Berkeley with all that rich history must've been kind of interesting. Interesting, yes, but you know the econ program had maybe 
very little connection to that. Yeah, I mean, maybe sure. Some people doing some history. Uh, the, the, Berkeley but the school, some, but the like the school and the oh yeah and the, the protests in the sixties yeah and stuff. yeah yeah well, of course I didn't know any U.S. history at the time like so I didn't know the meaning the eras later I started learning a bit as you know we were you know walking and looking at those pictures reading about uh, the movements and and so on uh, but yeah I we started I started learning about the meaning of the place and yeah. it was you know it's a it's a very magical place um yeah, and bet. so i decided that i needed to get into a phd program this needed to happen hmm. and so i went and talked to the philosophy people who had rejected me and they said yeah we'll reject you every time like there's absolutely no chance we're not interested whatsoever in in somebody with your training and you have no training in like no so that was very helpful I'm yeah. grateful to the I'm grateful to the person who gave me a meeting. Can you imagine? I don't think I would like I was a non-student basically emailing a professor saying I'm a rejected student from last year. Would you give me? Can I come see you? And so, so he gave me an appointment. Uh, told me very clearly this will never happen. And so I kind of I became very practical at that time. I said okay, if I and then I took a tour of the university. I went to the urban planning department. I went to the social work department. I sat in some classes. I started studying kind of the structure of the university. And I understood, look, a PhD is a pretty specialized thing. Like I won't be able to get into a PhD of any discipline except the one that I know and I'm training, which is econ. Right. So that's what I should consider. But then I had this independent woman in me and I said, well, I can't go and try to get into the same program my husband is doing, which why not, no? But anyway, that was a thought that immediately came to mind that I can't do that. So it has to be some other program that is econ-based, but it's different. And so I found this agricultural resource economics yeah. program, which is a department that is not in arts and sciences. It's, it's, it's is in the College of Natural Resources. Yeah. And and I went to visit. Like you have to understand that this is, I mean, we have internet at that point, but it's, you know, but there's still uh, a lot of thing, a lot of information that is conveyed, you know, in different ways. So basically I just went to the department and the department had an incredible like um, front desk, you know, assistant, yeah. her name was Gail. And Gail, uh, again, I was a non-student, complete stranger just walking in. And Gail, who was amazing and, and sweet and so helpful, she took a brochure, right? Things that we had back in the day and said, oh, this is, this is a great program mm -hmm. and you're going to love it here. She, in a way, started selling the program to me and she said, look, this is, this is what the first year looks like. These are the class of the students. And she started like, marking the brochure with a pencil and so she said well you know the first year uh professor la france teaches you know in the first year so i think you should go talk to him and he can tell you more about the program but i i, I definitely think that you should consider it and so she was so friendly and welcoming which had not been my experience in any and i said mm. oh, okay and so then i I must have emailed uh, Professor LaFrance 
and who again gave me an appointment. Again, this amazes me uh, to a non-student. And then when I went to his office, very stressed out at that point, speaking in English is still really stressing me out, right? I'm living in a completely new language. I'm struggling. I mean, I, I had studied English for many years, but still it was like a shock to be speaking life, right? With somebody in English. And this professor starts screaming, you have to take my class. Uh, I, you have to take my class. You know, academics, we love our classes. We love what we do, right? We love exactly the work that we do right and so he just said you know you need to this my class is amazing it's statistics is exactly what you need it's foundational I'll come and it started last week so you better just you know i'll see you there tomorrow right and so i said okay and i just showed up the following day and then i and then i also took uh and then i i, I started i decided that i was gonna audit two more classes from the first year mm. uh in 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 their program and and then i i and then i discovered that if i became part of the alumni this is like really in the weeds but if i wanted to i wasn't a student but i wanted library privileges so i could get books because of course we didn't have any money and, and i wanted to be able to go to a library and and check out books. And so I dis I, I did some research and I discovered that if you became a member of the Alumni Association of UC Berkeley, even if even if you were an alum, which of course I wasn't, if you became a member and you pay your annual membership as a member of the Alumni Association, you had library privileges and a little wow. card. So I did that. So I could use the library. And then I discovered that because it's a public university, they had a, an extension program for people in the community, which if you paid $800, $600 per class, you could basically take the class for credit. Then that credit you couldn't use towards a degree at the university. It was just for you to have a certificate that you had taken the class. So I paid this extension fee and I signed up as an extension student, like a member of the community that is taking a public you know, university class that anybody in the community can do. Of course, nobody does that for a PhD class, but I did that. And what that created was that, and this was my second year in Berkeley, right? All this happened, uh, you know, yeah, the second year that we're there. But basically, um, what this created is I was all I was taking these classes. You were taking but the I, ARE classes. You were you were already yeah, enrolled. I was I was enrolled in the sense of I was not a PhD student, right? But I was enrolled as an extension student. So my name was in the role of students. Ah. When 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 the teachers had, you know, when they got went to Canva, well, they didn't have Canvas, right? But they had like a printed list of students. I was there and and then and they entered grades, right? I was in the system. And so I took the entire first year of the PhD program as an extension student like that. This is Berkeley uh econ ARE Berkeley. Oh, so they're not they're not they're not the same classes. Not at all. No. Uh, some of the classes are the same, but the ones that I did in that first year, I only did the ones inside the ARE department. Some of it. the classes okay. were joined. Got it. Some of the classes were joined and some were required in the econ department. So, so you do the first year, you do the first year stuff at ARE. I did, but so but at the end of the fall semester, which is the first semester that I'm taking this class as an assistant, I applied to the PhD. 
Mm. And I got in. That's awesome. <laughs> and my single application, right? That I applied to this program. The thing is, they had so much information about me by then. Right, right. Because I had actually, basically, we were, you know, admissions is usually December, you know, the, by the time the admissions committee meets, all my grades were in. So I basically had done the first year, the first semester of the first year. Yeah. Uh, and done well. Of course, I took it very seriously. Uh, I knew the stakes. And and so I was incredibly lucky and got it admitted to the program without um, in harsh conditions compared to, you know, peers in the sense of um they pay my tuition, but they didn't. They didn't fund me in any way. I had to work for like from day one as a teaching assistant or research mm. assistant mm. Um, to make it. Better. But but I was grateful, you know. To me, this this felt like this was, I guess, the second moment. The first was to be admit, admitted to the high school, but this one was, uh, yeah, it was. I just felt the luckiest person in the world wow. because I was admitted to this PhD program that was in this in this university that was from you know my dreams and yeah. in the same place where my you know essentially the you know next door to where oh, my husband was amazing. already it was you know it was just uh, incredible it yeah. was it was so lucky so lucky was manisha shaw one of your colleagues mm-hmm. Man- manisha was the uh, manisha was there yeah manisha and i were part of um Initially, I started doing work with Paul Gertler, and yeah. uh, which who was in the business school at Berkeley and works in development economics. And Manisha was part of a, a large group of graduate students and 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 others working with Paul in a bunch of uh, projects in development economics. And so I met her through that, and and she was also in the department. She was ahead. Yeah. Well, so that that um the the kind of the the pessimism that had started in your master's program that and um about the disillusionment you now kind of start a new graduate program in a new place where what are you feeling about economics at this point that's a very good question in a way when those years that year that i worked really hard i just basically i put my eyes on this is a this program is a great fit for my training and Mm. i didn't ask myself whether it's a great fit for my interests because at that point it was very clear to me that my interests were evolving and contradictory and all over the place and my training was but my training was very narrow they when it was very so there was kind of a disconnect between my interests were all over the place. But if you looked at my CV, I was a straight econ person. Right. I had taken the econ undergrad and then I'd done the econ masters, even though I didn't have a degree, I had the entire coursework. And now I was now I was admitted to an ag econ program. So yeah. there was no ambiguity. Right. Um, but the problem was internal as usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so so that year when I was really worried about getting admitted, I worked really hard and I and my that was my goal. And so I excel in these classes. I found statistics fascinating as a side thing, right? So uh which was, you know, and we t- I took math and and I took the and then I took the Ag Econ and resource economics kind of classes and IO. And I didn't pay attention to the fact that actually the econ classes were not my favorite. Stats and was <laughs> uh huh. 
but whatever I had, you know, I had one goal at that point, which was, uh, I, I need to do my best and, and I wanted to be in this university. Do you think if you go back to when you're a kid and you go through high school and you go through college, are there signs that you would have been drawn to statistics and econometrics? Is it now kind of in hindsight, you can see like, yeah, I was, no. you, so you were really surprised. So what, what, what happened? How did you get such a, how'd you have such a positive reaction? Was it a professor or a class or what? No, I think what happened. Yeah. So I think, no, I think if I went back, I'd be a doctor. No, but could you like see a, the signs of it? Doctor. Could you see the no. signs? Can you see like, oh yeah, I'm going to be the kind of person now I, realize I like to solve puzzles or something, something like that. I think my philosophical inclinations, um, mm. that's the closest that I can, uh, because what happened then is once I got into the PhD, um, the mainstream of what the program was about, uh, resource economics, uh, and, uh, ag agricultural economics were not at all close to my interests. Right. Right. Uh, that was a problem. So that yep. became a problem. Uh, in, and I excelled in all the classes, so nobody could tell that that it wasn't my interest, but it wasn't really my interest. And there was another track that was development economics. And so yep. that was closer to my interest. And so I took the development economics track, which was joined with the econ department. Is that because the development people had all that RCT stuff? Do you think all the causes? It, it was in the, it was the, it was kind of in the middle of the, you know, this would have been 2005 mm -hmm. uh, or five, five. Um, so we were in the middle of the current building revolution. Like we were, uh, and so Ted Miguel was in the eco department at Berkeley and, um, and he, you know, he was, you know, he was promoted while I was there, but he was an assistant professor when we got there. Um, and so he was doing very innovative work in development economics. Paul Gertler was there. And then uh, Alain de Jambri and Betty Sadoulet, uh, who were, you know, prominent development economists who were in ARE in mm. my department, in the Ag Econ department. Um, and so they were doing a lot of field work. They were doing a lot of, um, they were doing a lot of, um, yeah, a, a lot of, uh, experiments. Uh, uh, Paul Gertler was also doing experiments, so I was definitely exposed um, to all of that. And and when I took the development economics field, it was very much about you know about you know the, how the expert the you know about the the limitations of non-experimental work and how wow. you know how experimental and non-experimental work. So that was there, but I think the moment when you know, I still wasn't clicking with um, the questions or the experiments. Um, but in my second year, at the end of my second year, I met Jas Seekon, who was a professor oh, yeah. in the political science department at right. Berkeley, who had just come from Harvard. And he had been trained very eclectically. Uh, he was a political scientist by training, but had taken a lot of mathematics and statistics classes. Uh, and he was doing work at the intersection of political science and statistics yeah. and research design. And he was working in matching estimators at the time. Mm. And, he, and, and at the time, research design in political science was not something that was at the front of a lot of uh, substantive work. 
Yeah. And so there was a lot to like there was a lot to say and a lot to improve about the way some, you know, some work was, you know, measuring things and trying to validate claims and these kinds of things. And so when I met Jazz, that's when all my light bulbs went on because he um so he taught a causal inference class for the political science department. Yeah. And was he a Don Rubin or a Gary King student at uh, he, Harvard? No, no, he studied at Cornell. He had been assistant oh. professor at Harvard. Oh, I see. Okay. But he definitely had been, you know, uh, there while Don Rubin was there. And he had basically trained himself in causal inference. Causal inference was at the cutting edge. You know, think about the hedge and Waba paper, propensity score, like propensity score matching. This is all like, uh, you know, the um, a body and imbens, you know, econometrica paper on matching estimators uh, yeah. is around that time. And and Jazz was working on matching and, and versions of genetic matching. And so he taught this class on causal inference that was very much at the cutting edge of all these things that were happening. And I was a teaching assistant for that without knowing anything about it. But so I learned through, you know, I learned uh, by, you know, going to the lectures and I, and, and then, and then he invited me to work on this project. That was something about research design and a particular, very particular substantive question in political science. And it was in that connection in how you could actually use those tools that I found like super interesting by themselves, but apply to, you know, actual political science, actual scientific questions in a particular field that that combination, uh, I just found it incredibly um, motivating and, mm. and and interesting. So carefully thinking about the assumptions of a research design and what that's giving, how can you interpret empirical evidence? And I saw the connections to policy. I guess I I was able to click. And the thing that I liked about political science is that I felt that political science, there was more freedom to ask pretty much any question. So mm -hmm. if you wanted to ask an econ question, of course, economics and politics are very closely connected. So nobody would say that a question that touches on economic policy is not political science. But in an econ department, people were very close to ask, what's the economics in what you're studying? Yeah, right. If you were studying anything that was a political party or an institution. It was it was more like, what's the economics of it? And so I, I got asked this a lot. Like, what's the economics in what you're studying? Right. And so I found the, the intellectual free, I, I found more, more freedom, more like more room to explore my ridiculously undefined <laughs> interests. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, when I was in ARE, like, you know, all these years that I was in ARE, you know, Imbens was uh, a faculty at ARE because he had a joint appointment in the eco department and the Agicom, in, in the ARE department, the Agicom. And so I took a, I took econometrics with you know Immens when I was a student, and so I you know I I had exposure to like you know, I guess a lot of econometrics and statistics from really great people who happened yeah. to be there at that time, yeah. and then when just show me how that could be used to think about real problems that a lot of stuff that the people cared about and. I felt at some point I felt that that connect that intersection 
was my niche, was my, I don't know, my niche, that intersection was something that actually I could do all day long. You know, when I, sometimes I train and they say, what's your all day pace? What's a pace that you could, that if you run, you could run like nine hours. So it has to be slow for me. So I just felt I could do this all day. It's fascinating. Mm. And that was the first time I felt like that. Up until that moment, it was like always a means to an end. That's the first time your interests and your training kind of merged. That's oh, that's time. amazing. That's the first time. I mean, how did I that struggled. feel? How did that feel when you finally started to realize that was happening? Like the clouds moved and the sun came out. Wow. For the first time. I mean, I was in the dark. It was so, it was very dark at moments. Very, very much so. Even mental health wise, I just couldn't find. It was because it's such, you know, PhD is hard work. All of this is hard work. The undergrad, all of it was hard work. Such high commitment. And not to get a sense that I'm actually, I can see where it's going or I can enjoy it or I can, yeah, it was too long only because I'm so responsible and actually, yeah. And because I had Matias supporting me through it um, Mm. because that I didn't quit. I'm glad Mm. I didn't, but yeah, I I think if if Matias hadn't been by my side, I probably would have um, just quit. It's funny how that fortitude I mean, there's so much uncertainty, but it sounds like you just had all this fortitude and you were kind of white knuckling it a little bit. You're just very, very smart and very, very hardworking, but you know, whether or not the meaning of it can, can happen. And then just when it does come together, you know, that might not have happened at Berkeley econ or might not have happened in another department. It might not have happened. I mean, it's serendipity. I learned that word. It's like, why did I need justice? Because I had a uh, good friend in the political science department. She was a PhD student who saw the announcement that Jess was looking for a teaching assistant. And there were not a lot of students in political science with the training to be teaching assistants for such a class. So he asked people to forward it along and she, she forwarded this to me. Mm. And I and I replied and he gave me an interview and hired me on the spot when, I, you know, I told him I took econometrics with the events and I did this and he said, okay, sure. Like that same day, he said, you yeah, know, yes, you'll be the <laughs> teaching assistant. And, and the rest is history in a way, but that was complete randomness of the world. Yeah. I guess the only non-random part is that I was trying to look right. to see if I could find something outside. Yeah, uh, I was looking for, is there something that I could do? That There's some not... endogenous parts to luck there you know, is in the sense that the luck can happen, but you may not be standing in the right place or knowing what it, knowing what to look or be looking or stuff like that. Yeah. So th- there's definitely some of that. I don't want to say everything, but a huge component was lack. And then a huge component was Jazz's uh welcoming me yeah. into into his you know professional life and and, wow. and supporting me and training me and giving me the space to be a crazy crazy person right you know to completely all over the place and completely eclectic student and basically giving me the space to do to 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 do all of this also encouraging me to train myself more, uh, both in stats and in, and and in political science. So, I mean, he, without jazz, none of this would have happened. Well, so how do you get into regression discontinuity design? Is that at Berkeley? That's at Berkeley. Oh, it is. That's at Berkeley. Well, so, so what are you working on at the beginning? 
I'm working on absolutely nothing when I start working with Jazz. So I I I start working with Jazz in a joint project on redistricting and natural experiments. And then when I go when I TA for his class, he had a week on regression discontinuity because mm. it was this thing, right? Regression discontinuity was you know well, uh, hand taught and butterfly paper is two thousand one, so this yeah. is like two thousand five. So it's still kind of reason. Uh, the but it's before version. that Journal of Econometrics issue, that 08, is it 08? It's before. It's yeah, before. so it's like yeah, pretty yeah. early. And maybe this even before, before some of those survey articles. Yeah, it's before that. Uh, David Lee's paper on the random randomization in, in, in RD is, is circulating in working paper form, but it's still not published. Uh, Lee, Lee Moretti and Butler, that was out? No, David Lee's paper in the Journal of Econometrics in 2008, where he uh, where he argues that uh, the RD can give you as good or as good as random assignment near in a neighborhood of the cutoff. Yeah, that's still in the future. But what about that 2001 QJE, that Lee Moretti and Butler? Enrico yeah, I guess Moretti. that was more an application, right? Ah, I see. So I'm, yeah. David's paper, David Lee's paper in 2008 is more like, it's a methodological paper. Got it, all got it. He happens, the thing about that paper is that he happens to have an application from political science, from yeah. the MNC advantage. So when we go through, when class, uh, Jazz teaches that week on RD, well, I had to, I had to learn it to teach it <laughs> to the students in section. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Mm. And I read, I think I, I probably read David Lee's paper in working paper form and the application to incumbency advantage in US House elections. Mm. And I was trying to work in Brazil in something else. I was trying to do a natural experiment in Brazil that didn't pan out. It was a change in the size of the councils and the municipality level. I wasn't I was I wasn't articulating the project very well, but I collected data on elections for these Brazilian municipalities. And after that week in RD, I said, oh, I have the data to basically replicate David Lee's studies in the US House in Brazilian elections. Mm. And Jess and I were working on the issue of incumbency advantage in other things. And so I said, this makes a lot of sense because I have, I know a lot about incumbency advantage now in the US and uh, David Lee has used the RD design to study incumbency advantage in the US but I will use this that I just learned to study it in Brazil. It'll be an interesting application. I wasn't, you know, I was a grad student, uh, probably not. I didn't have any broader horizon than that at the time. Um, and then I and then I did it in Brazil, and I found that the incumbency advantage was negative, and this was contradicting the entire oh. all the literature. And it was contradicting the results in the US and contradicting the theoretical foundations for why it should be positive and so on. And so this sparked my substantive interest in this and methodological at the same time. And um, so I still work, I still work on this today. So I have I published, you know, I have a paper and then a book in progress about incumbents and disadvantage in developing countries. Oh came from that original paper. But that prompted me to say, because the first thing I thought was I did it wrong. I did yeah, it wrong. Sure, sure. It's wrong, right? right I, exactly. I did That's it backwards. Like... So I went back and it didn't seem to be wrong. But then I started trying to understand, making sure um, that that this is correctly, you know, that this is done correctly. And at that point, the bandwidth I chose by hand. So, okay, how do you choose the bandwidth? There's this paper circulating by Hito on maximum, you know, MSC, mean square optimal bandwidth. 
uh, and then just stop me if you share your name, friends. So, and then I put together the paper with David Lee where he talks about randomization. So I said, well, what if you do if you share your name, friends in RD? And so I, we started thinking about locally random RDs in a neighborhood oh of the cattle, but literally, and so I put that together and then- Wait, this is your job market paper? Uh, well, my job market paper was a different thing, but- Okay, but, I don't want to interrupt you, okay. No, no, the, my job market paper happened to be an, a, an experiment in state legislatures, uh -huh. but this was my second paper of my dissertation. This is RD oh in Brazil. Gosh. Yeah, and, and then part of that, trying to understand how to make inferences in RD that are correct, because I yeah. think that I'm wrong, because this is negative, can't be negative, is, is like, Matthias, I read this paper, but, you know, if I do the local polynomial, like, how do how do we make inferences? Like, are these standard errors right? And, you know, and he's like, well, this is non-parametric, so the standard errors, no, technically, no, the bias, and so that, and so then we start talking, and and that's what prompted that led to RD robust. To oh my gosh, no way. So it goes, so it starts going in all different directions. And then I also have a paper on incumbency advantage and how to measure with, you know, Bob Erickson, who works in American politics. So it's like this thing that I, uh, so what the RD did for me is to kind of allow me to keep this intersection of the methodology and the application right. to a substantive problem very alive. And so my substantive question led to my methodological questions and vice versa. And my finding of negative incumbency advantage led to a bunch of other substantive questions um, that led to more empirical work and so on. And also fed my interest in trying to understand this thing as well as I could methodologically. Yeah. And so, and that's where I, and so I guess that was the thing that I had learned with just that but oh. I felt productive. So it's it, a lot of it. A lot of it sounds like your your interests start to be in political science a little bit, like or a lot. Yeah. And then yeah. the methodology uh, is like the skill, the the years and years of like technical training. And then they all kind of come together and you love both of them at the same time. Is that right? They come together. They come together and they show me a, a space where I can exist, which sometimes can be very miserable, which mm -hmm. is kind of in the middle where you, yeah. where you, you know, all these, you know, you know, all these tools in some, you know, detail and, you know, the, you know, statistics and you can understand properties of things and think carefully about parameters and their estimators and inference and what, and, but then you know enough about a substantive problem and that you can actually see how these tools can advance this substantive problem, can help us solve it, find the answer to a scientific question that has nothing to do with the mythology, but that the mythology can help us see. Sometimes a miserable place because it means that I don't know as much substance as the people who, that, who, who do the substance for a living and I don't know in as 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 much statistics as the people. Oh, who be in the bridge. Be in the bridge. Be in yeah. the bridge can be. Yeah. So sure. so I feel like an imposter pretty much all the time, uh, but <laughs> but but it's also the kind of work that makes me happy. And I and and at this point is probably my comparative advantage, mm. or what I feel is my comparative advantage. Mm that bridge between those two sides. You know, were you surprised at how much work 
are you surprised? Were you surprised if you had known at the start how much kind of like, you know, fairly seminal work in RD methodology that you guys would as a team create, would you have been surprised at the beginning to know that there would be this much, this many papers that would do this many well, and just, you know, for you guys to be at the front of the pack, the way that y'all, y'all have been able to be? All of it is surprising, right? You, if you think about how I got into a PhD program almost through a back door mm. by just taking classes as an extension student, and then you know being admitted to this single place where I applied, all that seemed like, you know, yeah, without really knowing where I was going or what I was doing, and without having a real vision or still, you know, uh, yeah, no, all of it. Oh, if if I had known that I would end up doing this thing, then I'd probably go back and take a different class. You know, I would train myself, you know, better in some area, more in some areas. You know, I would I would do things. No, yeah, definitely. You know, none of this was part of the plan. And all of this is uh, surprising. But in a way, it's also a wonderful kind of example of what happens when you expose yourself to new ideas yeah you don't know what's going to happen so i you often tell you know when first year phd students tell me this is exactly what i want to study i look at them and i and i think i don't know maybe if we do our job right we'll completely change right uh what you think is interesting what you want to do i mean there's probably some innate interest there but these years can be transformative and to me they were absolutely transformative literally transformative they just completely changed um, everything about how I viewed the world and of course you know jazz was very instrumental in that and a lot mm. of the classes but then their work and they continued you know you know trying to produce that work and that just that just you know these tools that I and the application of those tools to to these problems all of that transformed the way I I, I saw things and yeah no I am intellectually I'm a complete completely different person from that college student yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, I tell I I told you this when I saw you a year ago. I have two copies <laughs> of uh, what I consider to be one of the greatest uh, contributions to the causal inference uh, book. The books, the Practical Intro to Regression Discontinuity Designs Foundations by Cataneo Adrobo and Doctor Tatunek. And this is volume one, right? And there's a volume two that's coming out. Volume two is coming. It should be coming out soon. It's now uh, with uh, it's now with the press in like uh, the review stages and yeah. hopefully it'll come back to us soon. And I, I hope that it'll be out this year. Oh man, I cannot before wait. Before the end that of is the year. Su- that is come. really a, uh, a big kept secret, I think. I think that a lot of people don't realize it's got R and Stata snippets all throughout it. You know, you really dip, you really build up all the methods from uh, both like really small principles, even in the coding. It's just, it's just a wonderful book that um, uh, I I absolutely adore it. Um, So you've taught a lot of workshops on regression discontinuity design over the years, right? How many of you taught? Oh, I don't know, but probably, you know, a dozen or more. I mean, more, 20, I don't, you know a lot and you're um, going to be doing one for for the the mixtape sessions on may 7th i'm going 
Yes, May 17th. This was will be my first for the mixtape sessions. Um and I'm I'm very I'm very excited. So I did many iterations of this workshop in which basically the idea is to get uh the general principles about identification and inference on RD designs explained yeah. in a very intuitive way and then uh very quickly uh show how those principles work in practice so as the guy that we that we wrote like there's a lot of fantastic work out there on the you know theoretical work on properties of of this estimators inference and so on and our uh, our idea with these volumes and with the workshops is to just bring that to the applied researcher quite uh uh concretely and and so but at the same time very carefully conceptual conceptually very very precise with a lot of rigor so with a lot of rigor that but but rigor that matters for practice not just for the sake of sounding smart but rigor that matters for the credibility of of your empirical estimates so the class is very very much uh a back and forth between principles of rd and then uh, actual empirical analysis and data illustrations throughout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I saw RD wrote two things. I asked, I sent you this. I asked ChatGPT to make me a causal inference exam with uh, about regression discontinuity design. And it, it, and I said, I want Stata output so that the students can interpret it. And it gave me RD robust output. So I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I was like, all right, Honored. Well, this is the correct way to do it. If the, <laughs> the, if the warlords are telling us to do it this way, if and, does it. it's right. It's the right way to do it. But then um, I also saw that you have it in Python. That's yes. newer, right? That's new. Yeah. That's new because uh, we have been more Matthias than I, uh, we have been working uh, more closely in industry right. with people, industry folks. And we noticed that those folks uh, many times use Python instead yeah. of, well, they definitely don't use data, but instead of R, they use Python. Um, and so, and many times they were asking, you know, for, do you have this version? And so we decided to, we expanded the team and uh, and we decided to, um, to have the Python version of it. And so now it's up and running. Um, we are still receiving, so I feel already robust in state on R is pretty tested, and there are yeah. so many bugs and things that have been, uh, you know, addressed. And for size of your data, like all these things that have been optimized, and I think the Python package is getting there. Um, and the more people who use it, the better, because you know, the the more the more quickly we can smooth it out as the others. But yeah, I'm very excited. And we're actually, this summer, we're going to do the local randomization part of the packages for Python 2, which are still not available. Oh, awesome. So, so yeah, that's very new and pretty much in progress. The idea, yeah. But the idea is like to extend to Python that has become much more mainstream, I feel. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and also with an eye on people from industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think that people from industry people, uh, would, would get a lot out of the out of the workshop? on May 17th and through the 19th? I mean, I have seen, uh, the, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of applications in industry. I mean, it's, you know, tricky. You don't see them because they're typically stay yeah. in internal memos because right. this data is proprietary, right? It doesn't see the light of day. But there's, you know, a lot of people doing regressions continuity with advertisement, the timing of ads or, uh, 
with with you know several policies that they that they do at the companies where they change something you know abruptly uh and well just even all these algorithms that they move things around with that have all these like underlying you know yeah cutoffs running thresholds yeah yeah and so yeah there's definitely applicability of that i i in industry as well as i said you don't you don't typically see it because it doesn't see the light of day but yeah um, you only hear yeah. rumors about it it's like you never see <laughs> even with synthetic control it's like you'll you'll just hear them say how often they use it and then you're like well can yes. i get a case study and you can't find no, a case study no. <laughs> like uh, it's all kept under wraps yeah well absolutely. so so let me let's end on this i was curious um the opening line of Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, says it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and it was the winter of despair. So I was wondering if you'd share if there has been in your now that you're sort of senior, when you look back at things either in the fields of economics and political science or just your traveling, what would you say has been the, the, the eras of light and the eras of darkness? You've kind of touched on a lot of it, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, what, what do you think those things have been? Uh, well, interesting. I think one of the era of darkness was the time when I was kind of lost, uh, and, you know, in, in terms of, um, this disconnect, I trained myself to be an excellent student and that's what I was. And, and that's what everybody saw from the outside. Well, you're excelling at this. So you must, so come work with me on this. Uh, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't like it. I didn't, it didn't interest me. It didn't, but you usually don't get A pluses in things that you hate. You don't even do them. Like, why are you here? And so those years, um, I was very, very lost and I felt very trapped. How do I get out of this? Do I, do I leave this PhD and what am I going to do? And why have I been studying all these years mechanically without thinking about what I wanted to do? And what am I going to do with all this knowledge? And I don't want it. I don't know what to do with it. And I, it doesn't interest me. And and I don't, those years were, were very difficult. And yeah. I guess a great lesson that by persevering, I could find a way, I could find a way to still use my training and the, those things, but in, in, in a way that I found interesting, motivating, relevant, which are all subjective things, right? About, um, about wrong work. And I guess the other one that we've touched, that's for another time, is um, definitely the first years as assistant professors were an era of darkness uh, mm, because I started yeah. as a STEM professor in political science department without really having training in a political yeah. science department. Um, I had done what I could, taking classes and so on, but I was thrown into a deep end by mm. just being in the training track of a very visible department and I had a very rough landing at the beginning, didn't know how to frame, how to talk to um, this discipline. I had a very methodological point of view that was not necessarily the view of the, you know, median reader of a paper political science. So that was, that was hard. Uh, it's funny, you've always put yourself on this uh, cutting edge, methodologically, <laughs> but even as a bridge, being an economist yes. in political science at a yes. top program, 
you know, it's like you, you've, you've consistently just kind of put yourself out there and, and then met the expectations of the situation. It's really incredible. Well, I don't know. I consistently put myself in places where I didn't belong in a way. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, and I keep doing that. And that's, it seems that that's what I do. Um, the, the world's a better place because you keep doing that <laughs> <laughs> well thank you i don't know but you, it's 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 this i never fit it anywhere and it's gonna stay like that till the end <laughs> yeah yeah good well it's so nice to hang out and uh i'm really excited uh about where you keep going and i'm gonna keep keep my eyes on you where the where the cutting edge is and i'm gonna try to like you know run uh the nine hours it takes to catch up to where you were when i saw you and you'll be gone by then so um but uh thank you, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast and i'm looking forward to the workshop on may 17th and may not to may 19th i think that's going to be Scott. really valuable all thank right you, Scott. i'm very excited about the mixed safe sessions uh i love the way you structure um the pricing and how open you do it and how accessible you, you, you make it for people all over the world. So uh, I've been living your mission. So I'm very happy to be part of it. Thank you. I'm so glad. You're gonna see us soon.